Christy is coming to read our scripture for us this morning. It comes out of the Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 19, verses 28 through 40. Found there in the Pew Bibles in front of you on page 743, if you would like to find that. Or you're uh, welcome to follow along in your own Bibles as well. Again, Luke chapter 19, verses 28 through 40. After Jesus had said this, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. As he approached Bethpage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you why you're untying it, tell him the Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead went and found it just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, Why are you untying the colt? They replied, The Lord needs it. They brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt, and put Jesus on it. As he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. When he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. This is the word of God for the people of God. Let us pray. Almighty God, pour out your spirit upon this, your word. And make it be for us the word of life, that we might be people of life. And now, God, hide me behind the, behind the cross, that your message of love and grace might shine through for the redemption of the world. Through Christ our Lord, we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. One of my frustrations with the last week of Jesus' life is that, is that we don't have enough time to devote to it during Holy Week. For the majority of people, well, they, they, come to Paul, they come to worship on Palm Sunday, and then they skip Monday, Thursday, and Good Friday, and then come back to church on Easter Sunday. So on Palm Sunday, we celebrate Jesus coming into Jerusalem, being hailed as the king, and then folks come back on the next Sunday, and he's resurrected, and we miss the, miss the vital parts in between. Not only, not only that, but one-third of the Gospel of Matthew and one-third of the Gospel of Mark, a quarter of the, of the Gospel of Luke, and one-half of the Gospel of John are devoted to the last week of Jesus' life. 
The last seven days of Jesus' life were so important that the gospel writers devoted 40% of their works to that last week. But in my preaching, I, I, I've spent little time on that last week because I spend Holy Week on that last week. And Holy Week is not a time, is not a time for me to pause and reflect as a pastor. With the multiple worship services, the activities, the sunrise services, and the family celebrations, I don't have a chance to truly focus on that last week of Jesus' life, the last seven days of Jesus' life. So this year, we're going to, we're going to have a laser focus on those last seven days of Jesus' life. We're going, to, we're going to be using history and geography and theology to, to help us to understand why the gospel writers spent so much time on that last week. And so this sermon series is going to be just a little bit different than the kinds of sermons that I've preached before here at First Church in my, in my first 19 months here at First Church. Some of you will absolutely love the history and geography. Others of you, eh, maybe not so much. <laughs> Stick with me, though, because I believe that there are some very, very important lessons for all of us, for all of us during this uh, this series as we took, as, again, as we take a laser-like uh, laser look at that last, last seven days of the life of Jesus. And so today, today we turn our attention to Palm Sunday, to Palm Sunday. Now again, one of the reasons, one of the reasons that I think Palm Sunday so often is really overlooked I mean, certainly we, I mean, and we are going to celebrate Palm Sunday coming up on the Sunday before, before Easter, but this year it's also going to be Confirmation Sunday. And so Palm Sunday, like it is almost every year, is kind of overlooked. Certainly now we, uh, we wave the palm, we wave the palm branches and, and, and we sing Hosanna and those kinds of things. But outside of that, we really probably have not studied that day really intently. And so today, that's what we, that's what we do. So, so that early, that, that Palm Sunday would have started very early for Jesus. It would have started very early for Jesus. The scripture says that, um, and by the way, uh, Palm Sunday, this triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem is told in all four gospels. It's one of the four stories, it's one of the few stories that is told in all four of the gospels, and it's also told almost using identical words, using identical words and uh, almost a, an identical description from all four of the gospel writers about what happened on Palm Sunday. And so they all agree that on Palm Sunday, early Palm Sunday morning, he started out in Jericho. Here is a, um, here is a, a, a picture of, well, a, a satellite image of Jericho. I don't think this is showing up here. Um, I had a little pointer. I don't think it shows up on our screen. Um, up at the top of this picture is Jericho. At the bottom is the Dead Sea. Jericho is one of the lowest points on earth. Jericho is 846 feet below sea level. Again, really just on the coastline of the Dead Sea. Uh, and the Dead Sea is called the Dead Sea because it, there, nothing grows. <laughs> nothing lives in the Dead Sea. It is so far uh, below sea level that there is no outlet for the water. And so all the water that comes into 
the, the Dead Sea, it evaporates. It's the only way that water gets out of the Dead Sea, and everything that that evaporated water leaves behind, it's in the Dead Sea. I've not been there before, but I have been told uh, swimming in the Dead Sea is something that you'll probably only do once. <laughs> it's really cool to go to the Dead Sea. You can float, but there is a greasy, grimy, gritty film that will be left on your body after you float in the Dead Sea from all of the minerals and all the deposits from that water that is evaporated out of the Dead Sea for generations and, and centuries and millennia of that water evaporating. So Jericho is just on the, uh, really just uh, re- almost, on, almost on the shoreline there of the Dead Sea. And so Jesus would have um, walked 16 miles from the Dead Sea to the Mount of Olives. And you may wonder what that might look like. Well, um, I, I, I looked at it on Google Earth. So here we begin at the Dead Sea. And here you find going through the, the wilderness between, uh, between Jericho into Jerusalem. There are some stop points along the way. And then he would go all the way uh, all the way to the Mount of Olives. The Mount of Olives is that mountain that overlooks um, I, if, I'm not sure if we can pause it there at the very beginning. I think it's going to go through this video once again. And so you can see that this would have been not just any kind of journey. This would have been a very, very difficult journey for Jesus to have made. 16 miles, most of the time, somebody can go 16 miles in four to five hours. But this journey of Jesus would have taken him at least six to eight hours, at the very least six to eight hours. This was a very, very difficult trip for someone to make in one day. So more than likely, Jesus uh, and his disciples, they got up very early on Sunday morning. Probably they left Jericho probably around 6 a.m., and they would have walked for probably around eight hours. They would have come to the Mount of Olives at about 2 o'clock in the afternoon. And again, they went from 846 46 feet below sea level and the top of the Mount of Olives is about 2700 feet above sea level. And so it would have been a walk up the hill, a walk up through the wilderness up to the hill. And there as they were standing at the uh, on on the on the Mount of Olives, they would have been overlooking into into the old city of Jerusalem. If you go to Jerusalem today, you can find a, 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 a model of what the old city of Jerusalem would have looked like. Uh, and I've used this, again, I've not been to Israel. I hope to go someday. Um, and I know, I know that some of you, in fact, are, are going to be going here before long. I think, uh, some, think some of you. So here's a model of the old city of Jerusalem. And this would have been Jesus' view as he looked from the Mount of Olives over onto the Temple Mount, uh, the, the, the large Temple Mount. You can kind of see there almost in the center of the picture. That would have been uh, the, the Temple Mount. This would have been what Jesus would have been seeing as he stood at, on top of the Mount of Olives. Now, there are a number of different things that uh, strike me as odd about this, picture, uh, about this story. One of them is that Jesus has just walked 16 miles, and he gets to the Mount of Olives, and then he asks for a donkey. (laughs) 
That seems odd to me. I don't know if it seems odd to anyone else, but that seems odd to me. I'd have asked for a, I would have asked for a donkey back in Jericho. That's what I would have done. I, I, would have, I would have been riding on this donkey for the whole 16 miles, but the scripture says that once he got to the Mount of Olives, then he told his disciples to go to a house, and there at that house he would find, he would find a donkey, and he wanted to ride into Jerusalem on a donkey. Now, a donkey is one thing, but I would have ridden into Jerusalem on a white stallion. That would have been my ride. Uh, a, a donkey was, I mean, that was, I mean, it was a, it was a work animal. A, a white stallion, that's what a, 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 an incoming conqueror, a, a great warrior would have ridden into Jerusalem on. But Jesus chose a donkey. And he did that for a reason. In the book of Zechariah, it's a very clear sign. In the book of Zechariah, 550 years before the time of Jesus, in Zechariah chapter 9, verses 9 through 10, it says this. It's a, it, 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 it's a prophecy about this coming Messiah. Rejoice greatly, O daughter Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariots from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem. And the battle bow shall be cut off. And he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from river and from the river to the ends of the earth. This was a prophecy in the book of Zechariah that the coming Messiah, the coming king, would not be coming in on a white stallion, but instead this coming king would come in riding on a lowly donkey. This is the kind of king that the Hebrew people were looking for. Again, this was a clear sign that Jesus was telling them that he is their king. And that's what they were proclaiming him to be that day. But again, he was a different kind of king that they had ever, ever thought about. It's a bizarre scene. It's a bizarre scene. Here is this country preacher followed by a ragtag group of his followers he was riding in on a donkey, and the crowds began to, to wave palm, tree, uh, palm leaves back and forth. Uh, one of the gospel uh, writers says that they took off their coats and they laid them on the ground so Jesus' donkey wouldn't even have to uh, get his hooves dirty on, on the ground. It's, it's, a, it's a bizarre scene. Where in the world did the palm leaves come in? Why in the world palm leaves? Well, we go back to the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths is what, is what it was called as well. During the Feast of Tabernacles, they built a hut to remind themselves that they were wandering in the wilderness with no homes. The Feast of Tabernacles took place in the fall time. And so again, during the fall... Uh, the, the, this, during this Feast of Tabernacles, all the, all the Hebrew people, they would build a little hut or build a little tabernacle outside of the village. They would stay in that hut for a few days, and that was to remind them, again, that they were, they were wandering around in the wilderness. And they would be repeating Psalms 113 through 
1, 18, and, and the words of those psalms talk about the deliverance of God. God, save us. We were once a wandering people. We were once no people, but now we are your people. Come and save us. Come and save us and bring us to that promised land. Help us. Hosanna, save us. That's what Hosanna means, save us. And if you look in the Old Testament and the tradition of the Hebrew people, they were to take a, a branch of the willow and of the palm and myrtle and bind them together, and they were to wave them over their heads and call out for God to save them. They were, they were to do this seven times as they marched around the temple on that last day of the Feast of Tabernacles. Again, they, they, would, they, would, they would wave those palm leaves over their head uh, from, from the north and, and, to, the, and to the south, from, from, from the east and, and to the west, that God, that God would save them, that God would deliver them to be their king from all, from all of those directions. And so here, this is a picture of a modern-day Feast of Tabernacles. So this took place... This took place in, in the fall time, and, and, and those, uh, those leaves and those, um, those stalks, of, uh, they, were all bound, they were all bound together. Again, all, all of the four Gospels say that, that the people came and they, they took palm leaves and they waved them around. What's interesting is that many of the Jewish people, they would keep those palm leaves and there on beginning, um, dur during Passover, they would... Um, they would unbind those palm leaves and they would symbolically take those palm leaves and they would symbolically sweep out their houses to sweep out the lev any leaven that they found in their houses, but also to symbolically sweep out any sin from their houses. And so more than likely, these, uh, these Hebrew people, they had used those palm leaves earlier that day to symbolically sweep out the sin from their lives and from their houses. And here came Jesus riding on a donkey and they took those same palm leaves that had been used to symbolically sweep out the sin from their lives and they began to, to wave them and proclaim that this was their king. It's not the first time this scene had played out. 195 years before this scene played out, in Jesus' life, the scene played out a uh, previous time. Antiochus Epiphanes was the ruler. He was the Roman ruler of the Jews. He was ruler of the Seleucid Empire. Antiochus Epiphanes, he wanted, uh, he wanted uh, the, the Romans to be like the Greeks. And so he wanted, he, wanted the, uh, he wanted all of the Roman world to, to embrace Greek culture and to embrace Greek, Greek, Greek theology with all of that pantheon of gods and all of those many gods in, the, uh, in, in that Greek understanding of theology. And he just couldn't quite figure out why these Jewish people, why they were so stuck in the mud and they would only believe in one God when there were such a, so many more gods that they could believe in. And so he began to hate the Jewish people. He hated the Hebrew people. And so the, the, uh, the Hebrew people began to rebel against Antiochus Epiphanes. And so Antiochus Epiphanes came into Jerusalem himself. 
and he came into the temple there in Jerusalem and he set up a, an, an altar to the, to the god Zeus there in the, 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 the temple there in Jerusalem and he sacrificed on that temple to Zeus, he sacrificed a pig. Yeah, wow. If you know much about the Old Testament, you know that there were a number of things that were unclean according to Old Testament law. And one of the primary food, one of the primary animals that was considered unclean was a pig. The Jewish people revolted <laughs> in response to this act of humiliation that, that Antiochus Epiphanes had tried to bring upon the Jewish people. And there was a family by the last name of Maccabees, and they led a revolt. They led a revolt, and they kicked out Antiochus Epiphanes and the Seleucids, kicked them out of the temple, and they cleansed the temple and rededicated it to God. And so today, the Jewish people celebrate Hanukkah, Hanukkah celebrating the cleansing of the temple in the year 165 B.C., when Judas Maccabees came into Jerusalem as a conquering warrior, guess what he rode in on? A donkey. He had just cleansed the temple of the Seleucids, and he rode into Jerusalem on a donkey. 35 years, or 30 years after that, excuse me, 24 years after that, his younger brother, Simon Maccabees, he had displaced not only Antiochus Epiphanes and the Seleucids, but also the Assyrians, and they had displaced them from all of the Hebrew empire, and so they were beginning then to reign and rule themselves, and Simon Maccabees also rode into Jerusalem on a donkey. After cleansing, after cleansing not only the temple, but all of the Hebrew empire and Jewish empire, he cleansed all of them from, from the ruling authorities. So what does Jesus do when he first comes into Jerusalem? Do you remember? He comes into Jerusalem and he cleanses the temple. But he cleanses the temple not of the of the ruling powers, the foreign ruling powers, but he cleanses the temple of his fellow Jews. His fellow Jews that were taking advantage of the poor, mistreating the poor, and overcharging those who were coming to receive atonement for their sins. It was shocking. Jesus in their mind, they had just proclaimed him as their king. In their mind, he was coming to, 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 into the temple in order to cleanse the temple from the, from the ruling Romans. But instead, he turned his attention onto his fellow believers and said, what you're doing is wrong. We must get back to what our faith has called us to be. This is, this is called a, a house of prayer, but you have, called, but you have made it into a, into a den of thieves. Jesus paused and wept. Only the second time in Scripture that we find Jesus weeping, the first time he wept was when his friend Lazarus died. There's been a lot of debate about why he wept when, Je when Lazarus died. 
Some have suggested that he wept because of the, uh, because of the unbelief of, of Lazarus' br- or sisters, Mary and Martha. Others have suggested that he wept simply out of compassion. But we know for sure why he wept on this day. We know for sure why he wept on this day. Beginning in verse 41, the scripture says in, in Luke chapter 19, And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day that things that made for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes, for the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround them and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you. Because you did not know the time of your visitation. He wept for Jerusalem. If you go to the Mount of Olives, there is a chapel. The name of the chapel is the Lord Wept Here Chapel. Here's a picture of it. And in that chapel, there is the main, the main window. Is You can look, upon, look through that main window of the chapel. And you can see it in this picture. It overlooks where the temple was. Now it's the, the dome of the rock, the, 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 the second most holy place in, in all of Islam. That was, where the, that was where the temple was. He wept, Jesus wept, because he knew that the Hebrew people would, they were, they were going to reject the path of peace They're going to take up the sword. Jesus knew that within 40 years, Jerusalem was going to be destroyed. In the year 66, there would be, um, excuse me, in in the year 66, there there were going to be three other messiahs, so-called messiahs that came into Jerusalem. And those messiahs would lead a rebellion against the rolling Roman Empire. There were some initial victories But then Rome sent the 10th legion into Jerusalem and to siege Jerusalem. The Romans surrounded Jerusalem for three and a half years. The Romans built uh, built ramps up up those walls and the Romans would capture anyone who tried to escape and the Romans crucified them. 1.1 million Jews were crucified over the next four years. The ancient historian Josephus said that it was not just um, multiple people around the city of Jerusalem that were being crucified. Instead, there were hundreds upon hundreds, thousands of, of, of Jews were crucified at a time, three deep along every single road that came into Jerusalem. 1.1 million Jews were killed during the siege of Jerusalem after Jerusalem finally fell, and indeed it was burnt to the ground, and the words of Jesus, the prophetic words of Jesus were fulfilled that no stone was left unturned. 900,000 Jews were taken into the Roman Empire as slaves. They tore down the stones of the temple, even ripping up the foundations there are two paths for people, Jesus is saying. There is, there is the path of, um, there, there is the path of, of, of peace. 
and there's the other path. There, there, there is the wide road and there is the narrow road. One path, the wide path will, will, lead, to, will lead to destruction, but the narrow path will lead to God. One, one path uh, leads, leads to disagreements and broken relationships, and, and the other path leads to peace and wholeness in our relationship. One path, lead, uh, one path leads to, to hope and joy and life, and the other path will not. It makes sense. It, it seems logical. It seems logical when you have an enemy, they're an enemy for life. It seems logical if someone slaps you on one cheek, you slap them on that same cheek. It seems logical to me, someone knock out my tooth, I'm going to knock out their tooth. Somebody gouge out my eye, I'm going to gouge out their eye. But Jesus said something different, didn't he? No longer is it an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say, Jesus said, Jesus said, forgive those who persecute you. Be kind to those who wrong you. Forgive those who need forgiven. It's the only path, the absolutely only path that leads to peace. Lent is the time when we begin to ask ourselves, are we on the right path? I don't know about you. I don't know if any of you all have given up social media for Lent. <laughs> I know more and more people who have given up social media for Lent. It's not a bad idea. If you have been following um, what's going on in the United Methodist Church, if you have been following what's going on with the politics of our country, if you have been following on um, what's going on all around the world, it seems like Broken relationships and despair uh, and hatred is being spewed out all over. And I'll be honest, dear wonderful Christian sisters and brothers, some of it's even coming from us. God help us. God help us. That's not the path that we're supposed to be on. We're called to be on the narrow path. The path that leads to peace, the path that the path that leads to, uh, to to forgiveness and grace and love. That's the path. That's the call of Jesus. You see, the people who were proclaiming him as their king that day, they wanted Jesus to come in and throw out those that disagreed with them. They wanted him to come into Jerusalem and to kick out the, the rulers, the, the foreign rulers. But instead, that's not what Jesus did. He said, we better get our own house in order before we start dealing with those folks. We better become a house of prayer. We better get serious about our faith. Before we start worrying about those people who are out there, we better start worrying about the people who are right in here first. That's what Lent is about. Which path are you on? Are you on the path that leads to destruction and leads to despair and leads to disappointment and pain? It's the easier path of life, I promise. Are you on that narrow path that leads to peace, grace, and life? Would you bow with me? God, we thank you for this path that leads to life. 
this path in which relationships are restored, this path, this path in, 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 which, in which your forgiveness, your forgiveness is offered to those whether they deserve it or not. God, we pray that during this season of Lent, during this season of Lent, we would find this path of peace. This path would lead us to life. We want to take up swords against our enemies, the sword of words, the swords of thought, evil intentions. God, you've called us to be people of forgiveness. No longer an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but instead you've called us to offer forgiveness, grace, and love. May we be people of forgiveness, grace, and love. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.